0: Hello everyone, you're in it. This is Dave Birnbaum. Today we talk to Oliver Schneider, an assistant professor, HCI researcher, and haptician at the University of Waterloo Faculty of Engineering. Oliver's work centers around how to support hapticians or makers of haptics to design, deploy, and study haptic technology. Oliver has an interesting perspective because he takes a user experience approach which is a little bit rare in haptics. It's growing, but he was one of the first to do it. Oliver recently published a paper about his research in breaking down the constituent parts of the haptic user experience. There are usability components, there are emotional design considerations, and he even breaks those down into subcategories. And it's a really nice framework to think about the space. We also talk about what it would take to create a haptic design curriculum standardization, the importance of storytelling to make a design convincing, the uncanny valley of haptics, and the 5G era and the tactile internet. And Oliver makes a great point that the tactile internet as an infrastructure is important, but it will take innovative designers to create platforms that people want and need. So here we go, Oliver Schneider.
1: Did you comment on my shorts I comment on your shorts because we had snow yesterday and I'm just thinking Darn it. It's May. Why can't I be wearing shorts? Oh, man.
0: So you're up in Waterloo. Yeah <laughs> It's still cold.
1: That's too bad yeah.
0: I guess it makes it makes the social distancing even worse when you can't even get some sunshine, you know walking around
1: outside That's true. Although I am getting outside a bunch because of the social distancing protocols we've decided to adopt a puppy so That's been keeping me outside a lot. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been busy. So if you hear any barking in the background, I'm sure we can take another take. But uh, that is why definitely been good for forcing me to not just stay inside all of the time.
0: I've actually heard a lot of dogs have been adopted during this time. And there's actually some concern that when it's over, people will have too many dogs that they can't necessarily take care of if they're not working remotely.
1: Yeah, no, I've, I've heard of people who they say, oh, I'm home all this time, so I might as well get a dog or they get a puppy. And they don't think about if they have to go back to work or if they have to have other commitments down the line. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this was definitely part of the planning process. And this is also my research term, so I'm not teaching. So I'm also flexible this summer anyway.
0: You get to do research for an entire term?
1: Well, so, yeah, the um, my teaching load is three courses a year. hmm and then at Waterloo, it's a trimester system. So in the fall, I teach my, uh, my undergraduate HCI course. In the winter, I teach my graduate courses, one on statistics, one on haptics. And then the summer is my research and gear up for Kai and Haptic Symposium and World Haptic Setlines. Mm-hmm. So it's this nice little rhythm that we get into.
0: What are you working on right now?
1: So a bunch of stuff. I, I know that you mentioned the haptic experience design paper that came out recently, we're trying to follow up on that in a couple of ways. So we're looking at actually measuring haptic experience. So that's one data science-y project that we're working on that continues in that line of what is haptic experience and what can we capture.
2: Yeah.
1: And another one is, you know, how do we design for a good haptic experience? So we're looking at these techniques from game design, especially like juicy design, the idea that you had like screen shake and all this kind of fun, engaging stuff. Mm. Can we mimic that? And does that have an analogy in the tactile domain?
0: What is Juicy Design? That sounds cool.
1: It is cool, yeah. So there's this, I believe, Dutch game studio called Flambia, And I don't think I pronounced that correctly. Whenever I see something that looks vaguely Germanic, I use my German accent, which is also terrible. Uh, They are known as like the kings of screen shake because they build all these games that just have great game feel. They just feel good to play. And as part of the, I'm part of the Games Institute here at Waterloo. So I've been talking to a lot of people who do games user research and they talk with me about game feel or juice. So they have this, this talk, I think it was a couple of years ago at a games conference, where they talked about juicing up a design. You play around with all these things like screen shake and all these little tiny effects that don't have any functional meaning, but they just make things feel good, so kind of feel satisfying. So those extra little unicorn dust sprinkled at the top. And I'm wondering if we could do something similar in haptics, like is there an analogy? Because everything they're talking about is either sound effects or graphical embellishments. So that's probably the coolest sounding project that I have right now.
0: Well, I like that word too because, you know, it's sometimes difficult to describe the design value of haptics and you can, it's kind of like a nicer way of saying nice to have instead of must have. It's like, it's nice to have, but it's very nice to have. It's juicy, it makes the design juicy. That's a cool word. I like it, I'm gonna use it. (laughs) All right, rewind. So tell us about the paper that just came out, which by the way, I really liked and I shared internally Totally relevant. Like people are reading it and liking it. And it just struck me as, you know, it's part of what you often do, which is you take in your research, you take a variety of disciplines and ideas and create a framework to describe haptics as a design discipline, as a user experience modality. And I think you're one of the only people really doing that. So could you tell us more about that
1: paper? Uh, Absolutely. I like how you've mentioned that my. MO is to take haptics concepts and haptics research and then kind of put this framework around it. I mean, I bridge HCI, human-computer interaction, and haptics. And I feel like I'm an HCI researcher that's in the haptics community. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I've been trying to do lately is understand exactly this, this juicy concept that we were just talking about, this idea of how do you make things that feel good? And I think that making things that feel good is really, really hard in haptics because there's all of these systemic barriers Creating the hardware is hard enough, designing is hard enough, but doing new hardware and then designing it and then doing some sort of validation or having the time to polish that is really, really challenging, certainly in research. And I believe it's also challenging in industry. So what I'm interested in doing is really pushing the conversation into experience and how do we get these kind of polished experiences that just feel good? What does that mean if it feels good? And then how do we come up with techniques to consistently make things feel good? How do we design for haptics. Mm-hmm. Part of that is understanding, well, if you're going to design for haptic experience, well, what is that? How do we capture that? This paper came out of an idea of we want to try and measure a haptic experience. So the idea is you create some sort of haptic design. You have someone interact with it. It feels really good, and you're able to kind of say, yes, this feels good. We have a stamp check mark. Uh, This adds some validity to something that maybe you're submitting as a research paper. Or you can communicate to people if you have a new product, say, yes, it has this kind of game feel or this kind of haptic feel. But measuring that is really, really hard. So we started trying to create this questionnaire, a way to capture haptic experience and say, yes, this feels good. Or these are the things that could feel better and target those different places where we can improve things. And when we're working on this, we realized that we didn't actually understand what we were trying to measure we were trying to measure a good haptic experience but we didn't know what that was so the focus then shifted to talking to people both potential users of the systems that are really engaging and hapticians so experts in haptics to understand what would make a good haptic experience and then see if we could come up with a definition and a framework to understand that so it's kind of like this this chain of reasoning i really want to understand how we create polished systems that feel really good. To do that, I want to be able to capture it so that we can start to improve it or know if we've succeeded and then link that to the processes that would make it feeling good. And to get that done, we have to really define what haptic experience was and what are the different ways that something could feel good.
0: Right. It's not enough to yeah. just say, I'll know it. It's good when I feel it, which often haptic designers do actually. We have this weird term at Immersion, sometimes we call them people with magic fingers or golden fingers, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, Mm -hmm. if this guy says it's good, it's good. We can ship it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's useful, right? But if you're trying to incubate a new design practice, it's not that useful because it's personalized. And if that person leaves the company, then how do we get the work done? Or if you're going to teach a designer who has a background in a different design discipline, How do you teach them how to make great haptic experiences? So, so your approach was to talk to people who were experienced with haptics and had those quote unquote golden fingers, at least according to some people, right. Mm -hmm. And ask them how they evaluated an experience, try to have them break it down. Is that right?
1: as part of what we did, we also talked to people who weren't experts to get the other side of it, and we kind of synthesized those findings. So we had several people come in and play a variety of games with the Nintendo Switch. So this does limit our scope a little bit to vibrotactile. Tactile. Mm-hmm. It was the best way we could find polished haptics out there. But, you know, it's got a high fidelity actuator compared to other systems out there. And it's got some polished games that actually have been praised for their haptics. So we thought this was a good, somewhat valid way of saying hey here's a haptic experience that you it would be really difficult to create ourselves it's somewhat validated so we know it's good and we had others that we felt them were like okay this maybe this could be better uh, someone who maybe had only just experienced buzzes in their cell phones to interact with the system and think about what made it good and do these focus groups then we talked to the experts we talked to a variety of people that hopefully had these magic fingers so designers both in industry and academia and then also people who understand the haptic design but had other expertise in haptics. So we really wanted people that could think about the design process but from a variety of perspectives mm. so we could synthesize all of this different understanding of haptics and the value that it brings to see if we can capture what it is that makes a good haptic experience.
0: And what was your result? You came up with a model,
1: right? Yeah, so we've got a model, and it's broken down different parts. The most important part are the usability requirements and the experiential dimensions. So most user experience questionnaires or models tend to break down value add to pragmatic features and hedonic features. Pragmatic being things that are either useful or they, well, they add utility, so there's some sort of value add, or they're usable. So you can actually get that value add in a nice, efficient, effective manner. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's been a big push of the HCI community for years is how do we make usable systems? How do we make useful systems? Mm -hmm. And then the experiential dimensions, so these are the hedonic factors, are what makes it feel good, what makes it a really good experience, which ends up being this combination of all of the little things that someone experiences with a design or a system or a product that add up to an overall experience. And a lot of them are not captured by usability and utility.
0: Right. Emotional
1: design. Yeah, emotional design. Yeah, so it captures your emotions and I think there's some work that shows that These hedonic factors connect to our psychological needs. So like, oh, we have a need to be understood or to connect with other people Mm -hmm. For haptics particularly important this need of just like feeling good. So body sensations Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that maybe factors into it The usability ones are relatively known. So utility is it useful causality? Can you identify what the feedback is Consistency, is it reliable? Do you get the same feedback if you do the same actions? And saliency, is it appropriately noticeable? Mm-hmm. So some of these would be captured by a typical usability questionnaire, but things like saliency is one that you, maybe you don't think about in visual design, or maybe you you look at like clutter or, or minimalism as your guiding constructs. But with haptics, it's a lot about do you notice it when you notice it, and does it become overbearing or not?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Is it too constant? Because mm-hmm. a constant vibration is just gonna be noise. So we point to these four factors as being things that are important for usability generally, but they're probably the most important parts of usability when it comes to haptics. So the second part is the experiential dimensions. And these are, I'm really, really excited because this is trying to get at that question, what is the actual experiential component of haptics? And what we ended up with was five dimensions. So there's five factors that we think influence experience and you could have a system that meets one or more of these. So they're not necessarily all required. Mm -hmm. So the biggest thing is harmony. Does it fit with other senses? And this term was actually suggested by one of our expert hapticians. Does it match with the context? Does it match with the visual and audio feedback? I mean, as you know, we need to make sure we have everything synchronized to have effective haptic feedback. But what we found was that just by having it feel very harmonious, have everything feel like it's all clicking together and gelling, that alone could be sufficient for a good haptic experience.
0: Hmm. That alone.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that's what I thought was interesting. It's not just that you need to have everything synchronized and for it to be effective or to be useful or for people to don't be like, oh, hey, that's broken. I don't connect that thing that happened on the screen, that thing that I felt mean something similar. It actually was a sense of experience that it felt good that everything was in sync. Yeah.
0: I like that harmony word because sync, I often use the word multisensory sync and I'm kind of using it metaphorically because sync really has to do with time. And I'm like, no, not just time, you know, it has to be synchronized in other dimensions too, but that takes more explanation. But I think harmony, it, it sort of has this nice feeling to it because it's like, yeah, everything has to fit together on every dimension and it just has to make sense.
1: Yeah. I really liked it. This was, this was nice because we are using these qualitative techniques, so we are able to take this word from our expert and try and say that, yeah, this is the concept, and you named it way better than we could, so we're going to go with your name.
0: Yeah, and then you defined what harmony is.
1: Yeah, our, our high-level definition is that it's the most important dimension, and it's how tightly coupled the haptics are perceived to be with the other sensory outputs.
0: Hmm. Okay, I have another question about the paper. So at the risk yeah. of getting a little too nerdy here with words, I was interested in the way that you used hedonics and autotelics. Am I even saying that right? I've only read it. Autotelics? Autotelics?
1: I, I say autotelics. I'm actually not entirely sure. We could do a whole <laughs> Wikipedia, play it online.
0: So so, so what, what, is, what, is the, what are the meaning of those two words? Those have to do with the emotional
1: quality as well. Yeah. So hedonics, I mean, you know, hedonism, right? So things that you do what feels good. Mm-hmm. And so hedonics connects to those experiential dimensions. So if you're thinking about a user experience, it's things that just feel good and lead to a good experience. It's not necessarily part of the practical aspect. Like if you're using a system to, let's say you want to book a a plane ticket somewhere, which we can dream of doing right now. We navigate through the system. Maybe it's very easy to find our destination. Maybe it's very quick to be able to go through it. That makes it very usable. But that doesn't mean that it feels good. It could be just really ugly or things might just feel weird, even though it's really efficient. Mm -hmm. And so the hedonics are, is it aesthetically pleasing? Do you have that emotional connection to it? Do you come away with a good experience? Mm -hmm. And that's typically what gets bundled together in hedonics.
0: And that's one dimension, right? It's just kind of like anything from very positive to very negative and everything in between.
1: I think it's, it's usually a cluster. Okay. People typically say that user experience is a distinct quality criteria that includes usability, things like efficiency and controllability as well as non-goal directed hedonic quality fun to use novelty emotions aesthetics i'm quoting from a couple couple people here if you want to get really nerdy i'll go into my citations <laughs> I can't help but reference my sources it's it's the fact that it's non-goal oriented so just like if you're playing around with the system it's like oh yeah this like this little like widget kind of jiggles in this fun little way Mm -hmm. that doesn't get you there faster but it's really fun and that is the hedonic quality criteria so it's actually all of these five dimensions I'm talking about one of which is harmony and the other ones which I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about they're all hedonic qualities
0: and then what is autotelics and how's that different from hedonics
1: Right. So autotelics means in and of itself. It's been used in a couple of different contexts. There's this questionnaire called the Need for Touch questionnaire that's used in product development and market research. And it's used to say, hey, how much do you need to touch things? And there are people that are highly autotelic and there are people that are low autotelic. I bet you could guess which one I am. I have had people like follow me and I just put my hand out and feel like a wall as I'm walking along just to feel that texture. Yeah. It just means that I can be very easily influenced to say purchase clothing if I go in and I feel something. It's you know, I'm just like, oh, this this cashmere is really nice. I I need to get this. So try not to shopping too much. So we use this to say that the quality of the haptics, you know, you feel this this nice vibration on your skin that just like you just hold, you are like, yeah, I could just sit here feeling that for a second and it feels good. Like, you know, sinking into a bath and it just feels good mm-hmm. in and of itself, whether or not it's connected to the system at all, because all of our dimensions are about how it fits in the system. The harmony means that everything needs to be synchronized. But if you're just feeling like a texture and it's just a really nice texture, that's autotelic. Yeah, that's just the sense of touch in and of itself.
0: And so that's a part of hedonics or it's separate. Okay.
1: Yeah. In our model, we include that as um, one of the hedonic factors.
0: We should probably go through them fast for time, but I would like to hear more about all the other hedonic dimensions briefly.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So harmony, we've already talked about autotelics makes a lot of sense. Like if you have something that just, you know, people like to touch and in and of itself it feels good, then that's going to feel good. So that lends itself to a good haptic experience. The next two I'm going to mention together, which are immersion and realism. These are interesting ones to me because a lot of people pursue these in virtual reality, for example, or does it help bring you into the experience or does it feel very realistic? Realism might be important if you're trying to feel something remotely. So is it convincing or believable? And immersion is, does it draw you in? Mm -hmm. But you don't always want immersion. You can imagine a wearable that's trying to give you a small alert that says, hey, there's something coming up in five minutes. You don't want to necessarily be immersed. You want that just to fade in fade out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This is why we have these different dimensions is you don't always want or need all of them. You almost mm-hmm. always want harmony and you probably want autotelics, but maybe you don't need it. You can kind of put it aside. And immersion and realism, they're used as a proxy for experience mm-hmm. in virtual reality studies, for example. And that's part of it, but I kind of round out this picture. So we've talked about harmony, we've talked about autotelics, immersion and realism. And the final one that was the surprise was expressivity which is, is there a distinction between effects? What I like about this dimension, with expressivity, what we found is people really wanted to know, like, if they do different things in the system, does it respond differently? Does it have a range of effects that it can create? Mm-hmm. So we've asked the question, is there a distinction between haptic effects? And we say that expressive haptics are those that distinguishably reflect varying user input in system events. Mm-hmm. Expressivity allows users to feel their input and that makes an impact on the feedback received. Uh And you might be hearing the puppy in the background, (laughs) not
0: too bad. Yeah, no, not at all. No, that's great. Actually, I've only ever thought about expressivity as a quality of a tool. It's the designer's ability to express their idea and make that idea represented in the output. But what I really like about this is it's carrying that through to the user so that it's saying that the user feels that they have some
1: influence over the way things feel. That's interesting because we have personalization in this model, but we have it as like a cross-cutting concern. The idea that everyone's going to want to customize their haptics to make sure that it is salient. For example, maybe I'm more or less sensitive or I'm being active and so I need to crank up the volume. And also maybe this idea of expressivity. I, I did not consider the fact that expressivity could be also people having control over what haptics is there. I mean, expressivity to me is kind of mysterious. Yeah. It's also connected to, I think a sense of agency, the fact that you can act within a system and maybe it contributes to that, Mm -hmm. which also connects it again to, I think the concept of presence, which is used in in virtual reality and teleoperation systems. The idea that you want to be able to have control over or influence the environment that you're interacting with. And that also contributes to to presence.
0: All right. You ready to move on to a new topic?
1: Sure. I mean, I could talk about this paper for days, uh, (laughs) I, I I'm happy to get nerdy, but maybe for the benefit of anyone listening, we should move on.
0: Well, actually, how was it received? I mean, what kind of feedback have you gotten? Was
1: it okay? I'm not even aware what happened at Kai 2020. It was remote. Yeah. So Kai 2020. If anyone doesn't know, Kai 2020 was supposed to take place in Honolulu. It's going to be delivered online. I think all talks that we're going to be given at KAI are now going to be recorded as videos and then put online. This work actually received an honorable mention, which is top 5% of papers. So I'm really happy about that. I thought that was really cool. That's cool. Also really exciting is that I've shared it around. You've seen it. Uh, I've shared it with a couple other people. And everyone said that it seems to resonate with people working on haptic experience in industry, uh, which I thought was really good. Because writing this, I'm in the academic setting. I stay very connected to what's happening in haptics industry, but I'm not in that setting. And so knowing that this work is relevant to people in industry is really, really exciting. It means that I'm not completely off base, like pontificating about something that doesn't make any sense to people practicing haptic design. So, so far, it seems like it's received a fairly positive response.
0: It's cool. And it, like I was saying earlier, it ties together a lot of different threads of research. Listen, I have to make an ask of you. Can we get a haptic design curriculum at some point? Like it's impossible right now to certify people's familiarity with haptic design. You know, people study haptics in master's degrees or undergrad, and it's usually engineering focused, systems focused. People come at haptic design from an audio background or film background, whatever it may be. But there's no like curriculum for haptic design.
1: So I may or may not be working on a collection of notes for myself that may or may not become a handbook at some point. Nice. So okay, um, not to act too grandiose. I mean, very very beginnings here, but that would be the hope. I would love to help contribute to something like a curriculum for haptic design, especially because yeah, the design element is what's missing. The focus on how you can make something that feels good, that delivers on a good haptic experience, and does all these nice pragmatic features as well. Yeah. And I think we're starting to get to the point where we might be able to actually feasibly come up with that because I think the field is now mature enough that we're starting to understand where Haptics fits into this. We have enough products that are out in the world that people are interacting with that we can really start to see this across a diversity of contexts.
2: So mm-hmm.
1: now is the time. I think
0: so. You would have to figure out exactly what you were designing for. But I mean, maybe you could choose three or four platforms that were available at home, a phone and a little force display mm-hmm. from like one of these prototyping kits and mm-hmm. a couple of other things and have a set of exercises to demonstrate the concepts that you have put out in this paper. Because the paper is a great, the paper mm-hmm. is the structure, right? For like mm-hmm. an haptic design training program. You have to be able to understand yeah. these concepts and like implement them, right? But then the mm-hmm. question is like, where do you implement them and how do you evaluate the implementation? Those are the, the key pieces that are still missing for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think I'm starting to understand the different components that can lead to you know how you can influence these different dimensions. I know people who are practicing haptic design who have those magic fingers intuitively and cognitively know how to do this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Creating an actual curriculum, that's exciting. That's a great idea. You wanna write some topics for it? Help me create some Maybe cool we lessons? should
0: maybe we should talk about it. All right, wait. Next topic standardization, right? Right, yeah. You and I have been talking about this a little bit. The question is, what would haptic standards look like? How do they play into this idea of a haptic curriculum or a haptic design practice that is standardized and
1: interoperable? I hadn't put it a haptic standards into the context of a curriculum. So I'm just processing that collision of two thoughts there. I mean, to learn how to do a, a field of design, there's common tools that you typically learn. There's kind of, I'd say there's two parts. You can learn Design as a process, I've never been through a design focus program, even though I claim to be an interaction designer as one of my my labels, Mm -hmm. but I've never been like a, a capital D designer. I know that you can go to a design program and learn how to solve problems in a particular way where haptics is different. I think part of it is connected to this need for standards because it's so incredibly varied and so dependent on the context like you just said, to have a curriculum, you'd have to have a couple of different specific platforms that we would design for or have sort of lessons for. And in my head, I'm thinking about, okay, for material, you probably want a couple of case studies to show here's how it works in these different contexts and how you're weighing salience versus the autotelics. Maybe what we could do is we could talk to some of these people. I'm going to steal that phrase magic fingers, by the way. So uh, (laughs) you could have juice. I'll take magic fingers.
0: It's a fair trade.
1: Share and share alike. See if they can maybe talk about their experiences doing that design process, the decisions they made. And I wonder if we can kind of take a look at people from the beginning to end of a design process and start to outline that in a way that can help people learn. Mm -hmm. But you're talking about standards. So to do that, you need A, the design process, B, how that design process applies to haptics, which means there's different ways of thinking about the designs that you create and how you make those decisions. Mm -hmm. Like in graphic design, you might think about visual weight.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And haptics might think about, salience or the timeliness kind of constructs are going to be important and then finally there'll be the set of tools like in graphic design you need to be able to know how to use image manipulation um, vector manipulation yeah web tools, stuff like that which all rely on a, a series of standards to be yeah interoperable and, and uploaded so we'll need that groundwork to have tools that people can then use
0: I mean I guess we're using the word standards kind of loosely but at a low level you have standards for like file formats yes and then above that you have like you were just saying these standard ways of talking about haptics. And I think your paper goes a little bit of the way there. Mm -hmm. We ran into this at Immersion when we were doing haptic video, and we came up with some words that over time we started to use more and more, and now they have a stable meaning like density. Density refers to the amount of time in the video overall that has haptic events. And so you could have a more dense treatment or a less dense treatment. And that was really the only word we could come up with. And it has no real analog to other modalities, but it's just a unique problem for haptics to be able to talk about density. Mm -hmm. And so you have other ones too, like envelope and intensity and things like that, so on Mm -hmm. and so forth. And then, yes, you need a a layer above that of standardized tools. I mean, if you use a graphic design program for, for bitmaps, chances are you're going to have something like a rubber stamp tool you know mm-hmm. whether it's adobe photoshop or something else mm-hmm. and designers will say oh that looks like a rubber stamp tool and acts like one i kind of get how this works it might work a little bit differently in this tool than the other one but it has this purpose that i already can anticipate and so we need that too we need a set of tools that can can be somewhat standardized at least at the conceptual level mm-hmm. before you can have a curriculum because you can't lock people into a tool or a platform you have to be able to teach them like high level concepts and the tools for how to. Manipulate
1: their intentions and these are all unrelated right and you said a bitmap Manipulation tool well to have a bitmap manipulation tool, you need to have the idea of a bitmap, mm-hmm. right? So those are the low-level formats, right? And so I think that's where it gets tricky is what is that low-level format? Like once we have a stable format things like yeah bitmap or a vector image or PDF or, or what-have-you Then you can start to manipulate and make these powerful tools and you can elaborate on it. Yeah, and I'm I don't understand existing standards in other domains well enough to know which one comes first if they have to be kind of co-developed and my intuition is they probably need to be co-developed right you you build the tool to manipulate it the file format because otherwise how do you create those files and so they probably co-evolve i think that's what happened with photoshop and early bitmap manipulation programs right is you'd create a tool to manipulate this and you start sharing that around and how other people then build their own tools to build on top of it.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And also people hack the original intention of a tool to do something unique and new. And then that becomes like a design trend because it's cool. Yeah. Somebody's no one's ever seen it before. And then usually the tool creator will say, okay, I'm just going to make that like a function that everyone can do easily. Yeah. And then everyone does it. And then it's cliched and no one wants to do it yep. anymore. <laughs> I guess the point is you need the tool to be flexible enough for people to use it for intentions that the tool maker didn't even have, because that's where the really
1: exciting designs come out. Yeah, and this is where I think that interrelatedness with the file format is really important. Like, you need to capture what it is, and at the end of the day, you know, a bitmap is, it's a series of pixels arranged in a grid, right? Like, that's, that's what it is, and you can do a lot with that because, I mean, it's so low level and it corresponds to the screen.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Another thing I wanted to ask you about is avatars, AI, telepresence. It's top of mind now with COVID and people being socially distant and working remotely. And there's really this trend towards more interaction with virtual humans. I mean, even a few years ago, it was just it was disembodied voices like Alexa and Siri. And it's becoming clear that the way that we're going to be interacting with AI in in the coming years is going to be something more akin to interacting with a virtual human. They'll have a physical form that you'll be able to see at least, and possibly even interact with haptically. I'm curious, like, what do you think the potential is there?
1: Like to me, there's a couple important concepts to make this effective, right? To make sure you have this emotional connection. I, I feel like believability is one, which is important for social robots as well as avatars, right? The idea that you believe that it's an emotional being and that doesn't mean that it has to be realistic right Mm -hmm. we can avoid the uncanny valley we can have these more cartoony characters that still are able to articulate emotions and we believe it Mm -hmm. and we can suspend the disbelief if i'm feeling very lonely and i think oh hang on you know here's someone that's going to interact with me and yes they're virtual but you know i'm still going to have that emotional need scratch to talk to someone or to connect with someone then i may even put a little bit of that extra effort to suspend my disbelief the same way we buy into a world that is clearly not realistic in a movie right because the internal logic makes sense you're like yeah you know what yeah i'm going to buy into this yeah that's a good point and the my experience with haptics is there's been situations where i've designed for you know not a very high fidelity actuator there's not a lot of bandwidth and not a lot of control that you can do but as long as you tell a really effective story around it as long as you encourage people to suspend their disbelief or come up with some sort of rationalization for, oh yeah, this haptics could plausibly mean this thing because all this other information is coming at me saying it is, it is a person or it's... Um. There was a time where, so I developed this chat application called feel chat when i was working with disney Mm -hmm. and it was a small prototype all you can do is set of rhythm so how many pulses how long is their duration nothing super advanced there and you could just send these little emojis and the icon for one of them was this train because it was kind of like a rumbling sensation Mm -hmm. and you could customize it and you would send it and people like i don't know what this is i don't really it doesn't make sense then we replaced the image of the train with an image of a cat Hmm. This really cartoony cat, you're like, oh yeah, this cartoon cat is purring at me, and oh, that's an angry purr, or that's a, a happy purr. And that would probably depend, I'm guessing, more whether the cat is smiling or frowning than it does whether... The, like, you can get away with really low-fidelity haptics if you have a strong enough story that someone's willing to buy into. Mm-hmm. And just say, as long as it's plausible, then the entire thing becomes believable. I, I don't have evidence to support this directly with haptics, but there is some work in social robotics that shows that the narrative that you tell people about a way a robot's acting and the way it's moving will really change how you perceive it Mm,
0: interesting all right COVID 19 and 5g and the tactile internet so this is an interesting convergence we have the tactile internet which has been talked about and hyped up over the last few years Mm -hmm. as being this revolutionary change in the way that we interact with each other over long distances we can now use our bodies we can be telepresent in a way that we never could before then COVID happens and all of a sudden you have, it's really fascinating actually, the effect on the labor force may be the longest running effect of all of this. Like, I think people will go back to concerts, people will go back to sporting events eventually, but I was reading this morning actually that something like 40% of people who are now working remotely have decided that that's what they wanna do going forward. It's kind of like, wow. they can't take it back. Yeah. And I also read in the same article, and again, I'm not standing by this, I just read it, that. Productivity in the United States has taken a hit of 1% as people have moved remote. So it's just like, if that's all true, the level of pressure to continue working remotely is going to be extraordinary and it will wind up changing the labor force permanently. Mm -hmm. And then the tactile internet is supposedly going to allow us to have these more physical interactions at a distance. So you could even imagine some jobs that we don't currently conceive of as being able to be done remotely, like security patrols or working on a car to fix Mm -hmm. it those could wind up becoming remote jobs wondering Mm -hmm. like what do you think of all that is that a plausible vision of the future
1: i mean why not (laughs) the internet has already dramatically changed how we collaborate i mean we're doing this podcast remotely across the, the continent right i have played music with my cousin across the country and all it took was getting a fast microphone. You're a musician, right?
0: I hesitate with that label because I don't practice.
1: <laughs> right, I, I should hesitate to claim the label as well. But yeah, there's uh, there are systems out there that they focus on reducing the latencies that you can play. There's some latency, but it's it's low enough. It's like you know the 10, 20 millisecond range mm-hmm. where you can conceivably sync up and play music together at a distance. And we have that now. The biggest thing is reducing latency at each end, right? Like getting the ADC working fast enough, making sure your mic is converting fast enough.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I think it's probably going to take a long time for that to happen. Like how do you structure repairing a car anywhere? You need to have that end equipment, like those terminals to the technical internet. But I don't see why that would stop us.
0: It takes time for people to change the way that they think about Mm -hmm. the possibilities. Maybe what you're saying, too, is it's not really constrained by technology. It's constrained by our own culture.
1: I wouldn't even say culture. I think it's just it's hard for us to imagine where future technology can go. It's going to feel like such a flex. So when I was younger, I had an amazing opportunity to speak to Douglas Engelbert. And when I was speaking with him, he kept coming back to this idea of the way that we conceive of technology really, really limits what we think we can do. He gave this example of what was the tallest building you might have before there were elevators. Mm-hmm. You know, it was maybe eight, nine, 10 stories or something like that. So the elevator suddenly means that you can go really, really high and it enables these skyscrapers in a way that maybe building practices would have also enabled. But, you know, you have this new technology that allows you to do things that you never would have assumed possible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it takes a long time for us to figure out that the way that we know the world up until now isn't the way that the world has to be. Mm -hmm. So these technologies, they shift our paradigm of what is possible. You know, I actually, I have a hard time thinking about how the technology internet might change things. I don't claim to be a futurist. I haven't spent time really predicting where that's going to go. I think it could have a large impact. But I think the big thing I want to say is that we don't know how far it could go. And I think that is the biggest point that I'd want to make. You know, it may not be the actual delivery mechanism that changes what's going to happen. It may be once people develop the tactical equipment of YouTube Mm -hmm. to be able to share things effectively. And so it uses that infrastructure, but it happens afterwards.
0: Awesome. That's a nice ending, actually. (laughs) Is there anything else you want to say?
1: No, I mean, if I'm saying anything is possible, that sounds like a great way to end a podcast.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks so much for spending the time. This is a really fun conversation. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing where the model of haptic interaction design goes next. So definitely keep me in the loop there.
1: Yeah, I'll, uh, Yeah, you'll be one of the first to know. All right. Take care, Oliver. Thank you so much, Dave. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening. More information about this show is available at podcast.daveburnbaum.com. Beats by Iliam Copyright 2020.